Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Rachel Monroe. Monroe's first book, Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession, was published by Scribner. It went on sale today. The book tells the stories of four true crimes that had women intimately involved in them, but all in different capacities. I guess I started working on this book around when this, what, what they're calling the true crime boom, started happening. So you would just hear people talk about binging these stories. I mean, you know, appetites in the title is not a, an accident. Um, people often talk about these stories and or their response to these stories in terms of appetite, you know, being hungry for them, craving them, binging them. Savage Appetites is the type of book that, once you start reading, you can't put down. One thing that makes the book so compelling is Monroe's own reflection on her obsession with true crime stories. That was something that started when she was relatively young. I think it did. I think I needed to have the time and space to understand a little bit more about what it was about these stories that fascinated me. I think when I first wanted to write a project like this, I didn't I hadn't done the reflection I, and I hadn't probably written enough of these stories to understand how they functioned and 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 the pitfalls of them and so it was taking the time to think about um, how these crime stories had functioned in my own life. Monroe is a freelance writer based in Marfa, Texas. She also serves as a volunteer firefighter there. She's written about crime, communes, utopias, drones, small town, firefighters, haunted houses, really just about everything. She was recently a finalist for the Livingston Award for Young Journalists and was named one of 56 women journalists everyone should read by New York Magazine. She's been published by The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Outside Magazine, The Atlantic, Texas Monthly, and Esquire, among many others. Her essay about murder, fandom, and adolescence, Outside the Mason Pinkberry, was originally published in The Believer and was anthologized in the Best American Travel Writing of 2018. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Monroe's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, first off, I want to say congratulations uh, on Savage Appetites. Um, uh, it's an amazing book. It was uh, the, t- the type of book that I had a, a, a very hard time putting down, um, which is, is obviously a very good book. Uh, and uh, I know we're talking a couple weeks before it officially goes on sale, but uh, congratulations on it being out there in the world. Oh, thank you for reading it. It means a lot. Um, to, can we, to start things off, can, can you tell me, tell me a little bit about the book, uh, Savage Appetites, um, went on sale today, um, uh, by Scribner. So the book, I guess I would say that it originated with a feeling that I had that I didn't quite 
understand, which was that um, even though I was uh, a journalist and writing sometimes about crime and um, knew a lot from a from a kind of factual perspective, these certain crime stories would still get in my head and seem to almost, they just provoked in me a reaction that no other kind of stories did. I, I would get obsessed, you know, I would like stay up really late reading Wikipedia, reading message boards, um, and and things would just get in my head in a way that um, I didn't quite understand um, the hold that they had over me. And then I started noticing that other people, particularly women, would talk about crime stories in the same way. Um, I, I guess I started working on this book around when this, what, what they're calling the true crime boom, started happening. So you would just hear people talk about binging these stories. I mean, you know, appetites in the title is not a, an accident. Um, people often talk about these stories and or their response to these stories in terms of appetite, you know, being hungry for them, craving them, binging them. Um, and it was curious to me that uh, even though most violent crimes are committed by men and most victims of murder are also men um, and, you know, homicide detectives, uh, prosecuting attorneys, all these, all these roles that are in the kind of crime ecosystem are, are primarily held by men, but the people who are consuming the stories are um, disproportionately women. So that was curious to me, both about myself and, and about my friends and also about the world in general. And so the way that I chose to approach it was to find um, four different women over the past hundred years or so who each um, herself became obsessed with and entwined with a crime that didn't happen to her. Um, and I thought maybe by working through those stories, I would be able to understand a little bit better about myself, not just myself and the, and the kind of individual personal level of being fascinated by crime stories, but also the way that um, society as a whole sometimes gets fixated on per- particular crimes. Uh, you you mentioned the fact that the most true crime uh, stories and writing is consumed by women. Um, uh, I, I guess I had no idea about that, but then at, uh, at the same time, I guess I also wasn't surprised. W- did you know that going in that that was the case, or is that something you kind of learned uh, as you were reporting the book? Well, it was something that I had an anecdotal sense of. Um, I would say that Growing up, you know, these kinds of stories were always something that I um, enjoyed in a dark way. And I had certain friends that I could, I knew that I could talk about serial killers or something with, and it was always my female friends. And my mother was the same way. My mother and I, you know, I sometimes say that our love language is like creepy stories. We just send each other emails of (laughs) terrible (laughs) things all the time. Um, and you know, I would never do that with my father. It's so funny. Like my father and I talk about other things. Right. Um, and so I, I sort of had that anecdotal sense that it was true. And then a few years, a number of years ago, this a study came out that was, as far as I know, the only kind of quantitative uh, analysis of this. That and the study found, unsurprisingly, that uh, readers of true crime books were disproportionately female. Um, Surprising absolutely nobody. But then they, uh, in that study, they had a, they kind of came up with an explanation for why. And their explanation was um, that it, women like to read about serial killers because maybe it was a way to help them avoid being killed by a serial killer. And and to me, that was just 
such a um, ridiculous explanation for uh, for why these stories are so compelling. Um, so that was part of the motivation for the book, too, is like coming up with a better answer than that answer. Uh, the book you you mentioned is it's structured around four women uh, and, and four true crime uh, cases, um, obviously developing each of them, you know, as a, as a character and, and doing the reporting on, on who they were and and their involvement in what in the case. Um, did you know going in that that's exact that that's exactly what you wanted to do with this book? Well, it's funny. I had been circling around this idea of writing a book kind of along these lines for a long time, honestly. Um, I went back and looked and found a, a draft of, like a half-written draft of a book proposal that I had written um, like eight years ago. And it was it was covering similar themes, but um, what was tricky for me was finding the shape around it. So I was, I was interested in crime and on this kind of meta level, like the stories of crime, how these stories are told, why they have such a hold over people. Um, but I didn't quite know how to get into that. Um, so I had the theme, but not the structure, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it was really just, um, it just took a long time, I think, for me to uh, figure out a shape that would allow me to explore those ideas. And, um, and all of the, the four women that I write about in this book, I have been following their stories, not necessarily in, with the intention of writing a book at all, but I've been following them just as a, because I was interested in them for a number of years. And it was just, at one point it clicked to me that they, not only did they share this quality of each of them had been fascinated by a crime that didn't happen to them, but that they approached it from different perspectives. So one of the women, women um, who who was alive in the 1940s and 50s kind of saw herself as a detective and, and occupied that detective role and, and became really key in the development of forensic science. Um, and then you have somebody like Lori Davis who got uh, one of the West Memphis Three off of death row, and she she sort of occupied the role of the the defender, the lawyer, um, which is a very different way of, of relating to a crime story. And then another woman acted more like a victim, and another woman identified more um, with the killer. And so once I realized that there were these different facets, um, that each of them would allow me to explore a different angle on the same topic, um, that was sort of the first time that I could see it as a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. I was going to ask how how did you settle on the the four women that you end up using in the book? Because I imagine there's there's more than just four women and and four cases that that you've gone down rabbit holes uh, in your lifetime based on you know the the the, the book in general. Totally. Well, I it really was just an accident or. Just like serendipitous accident, maybe accident's the wrong word, but I think as a writer, I'm sure you do the same thing. I'm always kind of squirreling away things that that catch my interest, and I don't know if I'm going to ever do anything with them, like write about them or at any scale. But um, they just kind of fascinate me, and um, all of these women had had been that for me. I had written about a number of them tangentially in other projects or um, 
you know, the, actually, like, one of the first pieces of writing that I ever wrote and was paid for, maybe the first piece of writing I was ever paid for, actually, um, the first piece of journalism, was about Frances Glessner Lee, who's the, the heiress that I write about who in the detective chapter, who right. um, built these amazing, creepy dollhouses with murder <laughs> scenes, doll, dollhouse murder scenes that were used to, to train the police on forensic techniques. Um, I wrote, it was the first story that I ever pitched because mostly because I knew that these dollhouses I was living in Baltimore at the time and I knew that these dollhouse murder scenes existed and I was obviously wanted to see them because I like creepy things and I like small things and I assumed I would like small creepy things even more (laughs) and but they were not open to the public and so uh I figured I was like oh if I write about this for the local alt-weekly the Baltimore City paper they'll have to let me go see them. So I wrote a pitch, probably ineptly. I haven't <laughs> looked back to see <laughs> what it looked like, but uh, the very kind editor of the Baltimore City paper kind of walked me through that process. And so I got to see the nutshells. And this was uh, 10 years ago, over 10 years ago at this point. Wow. Um, wow. And then, and so that fascination kind of continued, ebbed and waned over time um, as my writing career progressed. And so then, and a lot of the stories were like that. They were just people who had been on my radar um, for a while. Uh, the Columbiners, I write about a, a young woman who um, was obsessed with Columbine and, and was involved in this internet community of other people, of other people, primarily girls, who um, had crushes on the Columbine killers. And that was another piece that I had written like seven or eight years ago, um, and had had just kind of followed up with that idea. I couldn't let it go. So mm-hmm. that w- that was um, that that's the last chapter uh, for the most part of the book, and that was just I found that so crazy in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know what else, if I've got a question centered around that, but that was just very crazy. And and d- do you remember how you found out about them in j- just like even seven or eight years ago? Totally. I remember it so clearly. It's funny because um, one thing that I realized in reflecting on my own interest in these crime stories is that they happen to, or they tend to, my my um, inclination to fall down these rabbit holes often coincides with times in my own life when I feel a certain amount of like chaos or vulnerability. Um, and the same was true in this case. It was right before I was about to move from Baltimore to Texas where I live now. And I had sold, I had sold everything I owned. I even sold my bed. Um, <laughs> it might've been the day or two before I moved. And so I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and, and kind of feeling terrified about the future. And there was a school shooting in Baltimore, which is North of Baltimore. And I was Googling I became immediately consumed. I was like, I need to know everything about the school shooting. I guess it would distract me from mm-hmm. the fears that I felt about my own life. And um, and through Googling, I found a reference um, on Tumblr to the school shooting. And um, through Tumblr, I found I found that like on t- Tumblr was where I could get the most up to date information about uh, school shootings because there was this subculture of girls who were um, obsessed with, fascinated by school shooters. And then I just 
I think I stayed up the rest of the night just gawking at their posts and feeling really uh, shocked and confused and intrigued and compelled by by them. Yeah, yeah you mentioned um, ref- reflection because you're very much uh, in the book as well. Had you written uh, about yourself much in the past? Not really. I had tended to kind of avoid it. I think there are a few things here and there. Um, sometimes in my reporting, I will, I'll have an eye. Um, I like to sort of deploy an eye just to acknowledge that I'm, the story is being written by a person with a perspective, but it's not usually like a memoir-ish eye, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't talk about myself or my past or anything like that but it did seem really important in a book like this which is focusing on some extreme cases these the four women that I write about really did transform their lives and take some extraordinary actions Um, and I didn't want the reader to look at them and say well that has nothing to do with me you know those ladies are extreme those ladies are um obsessed. Those ladies are weird. Um, I'm not like that. My personal interest in these stories is nothing like that. And so I guess I figured that I could, by being in the book myself, I could serve as a kind of bridge. You know, if the reader thought that these women that I'm writing about are taking actions that are too extreme to understand, it's like, well, I'm kind of halfway there. (laughs) So if you identify with me, maybe maybe we can see the parts of us that are reflected in or refracted through these more um, dramatic stories. Yeah. yeah. You, you said you had been wanting to do a book like this for a long time, but you were never able to like kind of pull it all together. Was it that, that self-reflection on your own part, the thing that really tied everything together? Because I felt like, I felt like having you in there kind of leading the reader along really did pull everything uh, and make everything much more clear. I don't know. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I think it did. I think I needed to have the time and space to understand a little bit more about what it was about these stories that fascinated me. I think when I first wanted to write a project like this, I didn't, I hadn't done the reflection and I hadn't, probably written enough of these stories to understand how they functioned and 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 the pitfalls of them and so it was taking the time to think about um how these crime stories had functioned in my own life from a very early age um you know in the book i talk about in elementary school for uh harriet the spy which is Mm -hmm. not really a murder book at all but (laughs) is a book um (laughs) that totally, to me, feels in keeping uh, with the later fascination, this idea of, you know, spying on other people's dramas as a way to uh, maybe avoid looking at uh, some of the chaos in your own life. Um, so, yeah, it started early for me, and, and it took take, having some more clarity on that for, I think, the book to cohere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, out of the four cases, um, and the, the four women that you write about, do you have a favorite? Oh, a favorite? I don't I don't know if I'm allowed to pick a favorite. I mean, <laughs> I have I have the oh, they're, I just they're also special to me in different ways. I just started to answer and then I started to interrupt myself and answer in a different direction. And I don't know if I can pick. That's what I say about I my mean, kids. So <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what you're supposed to say about your right. kids. Um, 
I mean, I'll say that uh, Lori Davis of the um, who who's the woman who um, saw a documentary about the West Memphis Three. These these uh, three teenage boys who were arrested um, during the Satanic Panic era for for murders that they were um, that they did not did not commit, and then fell in love with this man essentially through this documentary, and then started writing him these very passionate letters and um, helped him get out of prison after almost two decades. Um, she is just a lovely human being. Um, some of this, it was interesting to report out this book because the first section, my subject is dead. The second section, my subject didn't particularly want to talk to me. The fourth section, my subject was in prison. Um, and so Lori, uh, who is the third section was the only one that I really got to spend, ex- do extended, uh, interviews with. And so, um, she's the one that I ended up feeling personally closest to. Right. Um, but I don't know if that means she's my favorite. Right. Right. Um, which, which of the, the, the women that you write about, um, from a reporting standpoint was the most challenging to, uh, to gather information on, uh, to be a reporter? Um, the, the first section on Francis Glessner really had, was difficult for me, at least at first, because it was all done through archival, or primarily done through um, archival research, and I just didn't have a ton of experience with that. But that actually ended up being a lot of fun. It was fun to go to the archives and, and read old letters and, and touch old mimeographed pages. Um, and I would say that, and then the fourth section about, uh, Lindsay, the, the Columbiner who planned a mass shooting, that was maybe the most emotionally difficult, the, the, um, content of that section was, was hard to spend time with, but from a strictly reporting standpoint, um, the victim section, which is about, um, the murder of Sharon Tate by the Manson family, and then that, the political afterlife of, of those murders and the victims' rights, the rise of the victims' rights movement. Um, that was extremely challenging because um, it is a very contentious topic. Um, I was writing about a woman named Lisa Statman who um, moved into the house where Sharon Tate was murdered and then ended up um, befriending and then marrying or, I guess, Marriage wasn't legal. Gay marriage wasn't legal in California at the time, but becoming the de facto wife of um, Sharon Tate's, one of Sharon Tate's two surviving sisters. Um, and she's a very contentious person. There are a lot of people who support her very strongly, and there are a lot of people, including Sharon Tate's other surviving sister, who uh, see her as um, being kind of predatory and... Um, exploiting this this famous murder that happened in, in 1969. And so that, from a reporting standpoint, was very difficult just because I was getting a lot of competing stories from a lot of people who had uh, really long-standing axes to grind and trying to negotiate my way through this. It just felt like walking through a minefield, um, trying to be sensitive, trying to trying to get the truth as much as I could, um, and uh, the feelings were just still super super high um, around that. 
right, around right, that subject. Right. Uh, this is uh, Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Rachel Monroe, who wrote Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession, which went on sale today. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we return uh, in one minute, um, we'll continue talking with Rachel. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Rachel Monroe, whose book Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession was just published by Scribner and is on sale as of today. Rachel, you've written uh, a lot lot of pieces, or you've written pieces for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and many others. Um, Were you you writing, uh, doing some freelance work while you were working on this book? And if so, how did you balance it all? (laughs) I really promised myself that I wouldn't. Um, And I I did less than I usually do, but every now and then I would... There were some pieces that I, I had uh, hadn't quite finished by the time I was working on the book, and, and others that came up uh, while I was working on it. And uh, it's it's just hard for me to stay focused on one thing. <laughs> I think that's a problem that I have is when one when I'm working on a piece and and feeling like I'm hitting a wall with it and struggling with it, uh, it's really easy to get distracted by a new a new shiny idea and to convince myself like, oh, if I wrote that. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have any problems at all. It wouldn't be difficult at all. Um, and then I still haven't learned that lesson. Still have to learn that lesson anew every single time. Right. Um, so I, writing a book is funny. I mean, as you know, it's there are periods of lull and periods mm-hmm. of great activity, and it's somewhat out of your control. And so um, I just tried to smoosh it all together and make it work as best I could. I have a little bit of uh, PTSD, maybe. I, it's, it's all kind of a blur. <laughs> I know you uh, You said you've been gathering these stories and paying attention, and you've written about them as freelancers uh, in the past. Um, but when it came right down to you signed the book deal, <laughs> how long did it take you to get the first manuscript done? Let's see. Um, I wrote the first draft in about 15 months okay um and yeah again i was i was drawing from some previous research that i had done I and mean, everything in there is, is pretty much new i wrote entirely for the book but um i was playing around with with some characters and research or just interests that i had previously um but yeah that felt that felt pretty fast i know people write books even faster than that but that felt like a breakneck speed for me i don't know 
how anybody does it any faster. I mean, Donna Tart writes one book every 10 years, so... Yeah, um, that seems nice. <laughs> I'm going to shoot for that at some point in time in my life. Well, that's yeah. all I have to do. Um, so uh, you, I mean, you are you do a lot of freelance work um, for some really amazing national magazines. Um, uh, but you live, uh, I think, about as far south as one can live in Texas um, and still be in Texas. I guess um, is, is it challenging to be a, like a national freelancer in a, in a place that is. Is as remote as where you live? I think in some ways it's an advantage. In some ways it's definitely a disadvantage. I live in Marfa, Texas, which is about 70 miles from the Mexican border and, and 200 miles from the nearest airport in El Paso. And, um, and so that 200 mile drive to the airport is one of the big disadvantages right. to be sure. But um, I guess I think that to people, to editors who live primarily in New York, uh, it makes me exotic, which is, is maybe more of a testament to um, how concentrated the media industry is. It, it does not really say anything about me because I'm not really that interesting. But um, <laughs> And I do think that there is sometimes an advantage in that uh, certain things come across my radar um, before they would, before they trickle over to New York. I mean, I think about a story that I wrote for the New Yorker a few years ago about essential oils and the multi-level marketing companies that, that were selling essential oils. And I tried to sell that story forever because from where I was living in, in rural Texas, I was like, this stuff is everywhere. There's essential oils are everywhere. This is a huge thing. And I would, I would try to bring that news to my, editors in New York and they would have no idea what I was talking about. And it took a little while before um, I think that phenomenon started to make its way uh, to New York or to the, these coastal cities. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden people were interested, but there's an idea, right? That like everything happened in New York and then, right. and then, and then we elsewhere find out about it later. But I think uh, often it's, it's the reverse. And so being um, being being in Texas, being in a rural place, being in the Southwest, being so close to the border, being in in uh, near oil country, a lot of things happen here. Um, right, I maybe would see them see these certain phenomena quicker than I would, or they're more noticeable uh, than they would be if I lived in on the East coast. And I think Eva Holland, uh, said something similar. Uh, and I can't remember if she said it when she was on the podcast or if we were another time we were talking, cause she's up in the Yukon, which is also kind of remote. Um, but she's also writing for national magazines. Uh, and, and she saw it as a benefit for her to be kind of away from everyone else. Um, yeah. And she writes such, and she comes up with such amazing, fascinating stories that you could only imagine coming from her brain and, and with such a unique perspective. Um, Definitely. I think it's, it makes her work stand out so much and it makes you kind of like thirsty to read what she writes because you, you right. don't get that perspective yeah. elsewhere not and enough other places. And she's got a book that's going to be coming out at some point in time and hopefully we'll get her back on the show here uh, to talk about that one. And she wrote that book very fast. She is such a pro. She did. She did. Um, when, uh, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Hmm. I mean, I think it was probably from a very early age it was one of the only things that I was 
ever good at. Uh, I guess for a long time I wanted to be a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. So that was what I imagined my path to be for a long time, actually. I didn't start uh, writing nonfiction until after I got a master's in writing fiction. <laughs> so, I mean, what drew you to nonfiction then, do you think? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think I think for a long time I didn't feel like I had permission to write nonfiction. I don't know who where that where I imagine that permission would come from, you know, some imaginary authority outside of me. But I, I guess I felt like I didn't I didn't know enough or that my perspective wasn't um valuable or that I didn't have enough to say. Um and so writing fiction was for me at least like sometimes a way to hide. Um and it was just over time that I I grew a little bit more confident that um, in in seeing what I observed and what I noticed about the world and and I just really loved it. I mean, I I love asking people questions. I loved being nosy. Um, my brain is wired such that I get I have like serial obsessions. I mean, not serial like the food, but you know, like one after another, I'll get fascinated with something for a few months and then leave it behind and get totally fascinated with something else. And that turns out that that's, uh, I used to always feel really guilty about that. Um, but it turns out that that's a really great, uh, way to be wired for, for writing, mm-hmm. uh, for, for being a freelancer. Right. Right. Um, you, uh, I, I should have asked this to you earlier when, we, when I asked you how long it took you to write, um, to, to write the, the first draft of, of Savage Appetites, but how, how did it feel when you were, when you sent that first manuscript uh, off to your editor? It felt like, you know, that moment when you are, you jump off the cliff into the water and then there's that period when you're, you're falling and it always feels like it lasts way longer than it should. It's, it's that kind of like plummeting uh sense um but also i i was really i i tried really hard to allow myself the space to feel proud of myself mm-hmm. i don't know if you have this problem but it's hard for me to that that phase of creation that's like the basking phase mm-hmm. i'm trying to encourage my friends to do this more um to just sit back and be like wow i'm proud of myself that was really hard and i and i did that um so i've been trying to to take the time to before I jump to the anxiety of uh, how's it all going to work out and, and thinking about all <laughs> of the flaws to make some make some space to just be like wow I did that yeah yeah I've been sending book proposals around um, to university press editors and I've, I I feel excited when I email it and then I immediately go to my email and keep hitting refresh. <laughs> Thinking yep. that they're just going to respond to me immediately, which of course they won't. Exactly. So <laughs> it's, but I, it's that desire for feedback. I, I need it. it. I need it horribly. And, and Glenn Stout spoiled me when he was my editor at SB Nation long form because he always got me feedback quickly. So, um, so I, you've got one book down. Uh, is there another one in the work that you can talk about or, or are you working on, on freelance stuff right now? I'm working on a lot of freelance stuff. I have the, um, I guess it's maybe like once you get a tattoo, when you have a baby or something, it's, you know, it's like painful while you're doing, writing a book is painful while you're doing it. But then, but then as soon as it's over, you kind of weirdly want to be back in that space. So um, I'm kind of craving 
craving another one and I have a few tentative ideas but but nothing yeah nothing that I've really sat down and and confirmed with myself that I want to that's what I want to spend a few years right doing right I I would hope that it maybe wouldn't be crime I did I have uh I do feel a little bit burned out on the crime beat to tell you the truth are you still are you do you still though find yourself pulled in to stuff or no? Not, Do you feel like- not in the same way, you know? It's funny, not in the same way that I used to. I mean, I used to be able to totally veg out to, um, you know, Oxygen or, or True TV or these um, forensic files, Dateline, these, these shows, um, or even, even something like Law & Order SCU, kind of zone out to it. And it doesn't quite operate the same way on my brain as it used to. I um, find myself thinking too much. That, that critical part of my brain starts piping up and, and critiquing what it's seeing and what's in the story and what's left out of the story. And um, it's sort of annoying. Do you think, I mean, <laughs> it's do a you, good way to like ruin a, ruin a subject for yourself is to write a book about it. <laughs> right. I was going to say, is, is that because of the book? I mean, the writing of the book, because you, you've been thinking about it nonstop for, you said, 15 months practically. So, Yeah. Yeah, and longer, you know, and longer right. at this point. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, too, that, um, you know, writing a book, uh, for me, it was similar to running a marathon. I didn't want to do it again until six months later, and then I wanted to do it again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you get you forget the pain and then yeah, only remember the pleasure or whatever. Right, right. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and congratulations again on Savage Appetites, four true crime stories of women, crime, and obsession, which is on sale today. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for talking to me about it. It's been great talking with you. I've been talking with Rachel Monroe. Her first book, Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession, was published by Scribner and went on sale today. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Monroe's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program, and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>